You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Tahir Khalid. Uh, we're coming direct to you from our studios in South London. And uh, it's been quite an eventful weekend, second weekend of the Premiership. I was just uh, scanning the results over the weekend, just you know, see if there's any uh, kind of like uh, peaks, and yeah, you know, just kind of like I suppose uh, I think curveballs, and yeah, what comes to mind is the. Do we need to go there? Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, the, the performance of you know one of the mighty clubs of uh, uh, the English Premier League, Manchester United, four nil. Against, against Brentford. Brentford. Brentford came to the Premier League last season, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, One of the minnows. Yeah. You know, I... How, how, how is... How has such a... I mean, okay. Yeah, towards the end of last season, you saw you know, a spate of bad results. And yeah, you would have thought over the, uh, you know, the, the, the off-season... Pre-season. Yeah, pre-season uh, games and stuff. They, they we did well. Put their... their house in order but yeah two losses in the first two and we're at the bottom, bottom of the premiership as well the table yeah I think it's the first time in what 30 years that mm-hmm. we're at the bottom um look we could spend the whole two hours we, we could, won't we could two minutes would do two minutes <laughs> is not enough to to <laughs> explain the pain and depression which Manchester United <laughs> has caused. Right, okay. Um, so it's better to just stay away and avoid <laughs> all sport topics. Okay. But, I mean, no, Manchester United, on a on a serious note... Why the, is it so appalling? I think... Why is it so poor? From what I understand and what I see, the structure of the club is... Um, it's in no good shape at all. Mm. There's no football director, no sporting director. Um... And those who are in charge, seemingly, have no, haven't got football backgrounds. Mm-hmm. They don't understand. They can run business, the business mm-hmm. side, the commercial side of Manchester United is is doing fine. But the the football side is is. But ultimately, is, that that I mean that uh, model right works. It has worked before for Manchester United under Ferguson, right, and the owners. So why is it such that you know the priest or those managers that have come in uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's kind of like coattails yeah. haven't been able to, to to pick up the reins? So one is the structure, mm-hmm. um, which is poor. Secondly, because of that structure, the players which are bought aren't according to. There's no definition of how you want to play football. Right. You look at Pep. You see, Pep knows he has this style of football he wants to play. Mm-hmm. Klopp, he has a style of football he wants to play. Mm-hmm. And he buys players according to that style he wants to play in. Mm-hmm. And it's and all major teams around the world, they they choose, okay, I want to play in this kind of way. I need a player who can do this, 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 this. Mm-hmm. So Man United have just gone and bought superstars or they've bought players which will, on a commercial level, would will give them a lot of revenue. Mm-hmm. But on, in footballing sides, it's not going to do the same thing. Yes, they've they've spent a billion pounds, mm-hmm. but it's all it, misspent. 
yeah it's not been spent saying? in the right way it's Sorry. not been spent identifying a, a style of football mm-hmm. and because of that we still have players who are who played under Ferguson David De Gea mm-hmm. played under Ferguson Phil Jones played under Ferguson we've got players who played under David Moyes who David mm-hmm. Moyes signed we've got players who uh, who was after Moyes Van Howe Mm-hmm. Van Howe signed uh, and then we got players who Mourinho signed mm-hmm. and then we've got players who Oli signed mm-hmm. so we've now got three players who Ten yeah, Hag you signed you, you would have said that look come on yeah you've got such a band of there, there must be you know, at least six or seven good players there how comes they're not I, I mean for me personally as an out, outsider looking in it's just you know they've been paid astronomical sums yeah just to yeah, you know, they don't even have to rock up and play, right? They're still getting paid. That's the problem, right? That they've they and know they don't have that motivation. They know that they're getting, like you said, astronomical figures. They're getting mm-hmm. really large sums. Their salary, they're getting paid every week in thousands. Mm. David de Gea, I think, he's the most expensive goalkeeper in the world. Mm-hmm. He's getting the highest wages, around three hundred seventy-five thousand a week. Blimey! So who and. Um, it's the same Bruno Fernandes we bought him on and he came from Sporting Lisbon under Oli and he performed amazing mm-hmm. and then before the next manager came in Oli got sacked Ten Hag was going to come in and what they did was they boosted his um, they, they gave him an extra contract mm-hmm. uh, upped his wages and after that, he's just, he's like, I'm getting paid. So obviously he's not said it, but mm-hmm. you can just see. But you see, can see in his performances. It's, and it's the same with a lot of other players. They're well, mediocre players. I'm, I'm going I'm to draw a line underneath. I, it was, it was a, I, I thought it might be a scab, right, <laughs> which you could just pick and it would be healed underneath. But it it's doesn't just, seem to be gushing. like that. It's gushing. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll draw a line under that. But um, as, as with uh, most Monday shows, uh, drive time shows we we deal with quite contemporary issues so yeah. today we're we're looking at russian sanctions and the the actual impact it has us uh, on us on our daily lives um so you know we're looking at the economic uh, you know ramifications of that uh, and seeing if are there solutions are there actually are they actually working you know because that conflict is still going on uh in the second hour we'll be looking at teachers um you know what's happening with the teaching fraternity are we actually losing uh teachers you know is it better to go abroad now and teach mm. abroad um so we've seen that and not just uh in teachers as a part of the public uh workforce but also in other uh, environs within the economy you know you look at nurses you look at you know the strikes that have been going up and down the country you know with the RMT union. Yeah. So, you know, there is some kind of dis- well, there is not even some kind, but there is discord as to regards their remuneration. So, those are the two topics and without further ado, we'll jump straight into our first topic, which is Russian sanctions. Now, um as we all know, uh the impact uh that it has on our daily lives is is far and you know far reaching. Uh, now, as we look at the global uh, political and economic situation, we find that the, the major powers are attempting to exert power through economic means, so these sanctions. But even though we're not at war with each other yet, thank God, uh, using our troops and you know, conventional warfare, we're using our influence to control, uh, or hopefully, a desirable outcome. 
Now, for example, Russia is using the gas supplies as a weapon against the world uh, and also, you know, stopping the grain exports uh, coming from Ukraine uh, across Europe. National and local governments are trying to cope with gas gas shortages uh, as Russia cuts its gas shipments in response to the sanctions imposed by Western countries during the war or during this uh, conflict with the Ukraine. Now, the restrictions have far-reaching impacts on daily life across the continent and the world as such. And of course, I mean, we know governments have been forced to take measures such as lowering temperatures, um, city centres losing overnight lighting and um, fountains running dry. Now, we're going to be discussing this throughout the first hour in a lot more detail. Um, and we want, of course, our listeners to call in. Mm-hmm. Um, the number to call us on is 020-8687-7878. That's 020-8687-7878. You can also tweet, <laughs> I'm about to forget for a second, and you can also tweet to us at Voice of Islam. UK. Mm. And um, I mean, if we look at some of the statistics um, before we go to our first guest and uh, look at how much this war has cost, mm-hmm. the euro has reached a 20 year low against the dollar as recession predictions are high. And more people are turning to food banks for food in Italy. Now, in the UK, prices rose by 4.4% compared to July last year. And um, even here in the McDonald's as well, we've seen that the ra- it's raised prices of cheeseburgers for the first time in 14 years. The Netherlands have urged residents to take shorter showers here in the UK as well. I got an email from, who am I? Who's my suppliers? Must be Thames. It is. It yeah. is SES Water. Oh, okay. Yeah. Southeast. And they gave me an email Um and of course, it's, it's also mentioning about the heat wave as well. But also, um, because of everything that's happening, I got a re- an email before about this as well, that hose pipe bands mm-hmm. um, have, uh, they said, have, have shorter showers, save water. Um, but is this because of the sanctions, right? I mean, we are ex- experiencing and have experienced... Um, you know, extremely high temperatures uh, in the month of July and now in August as well. Uh, And I know it's very hard to uh, single out the actual impact of the conflict uh, between the Ukraine, uh, between Ukraine and Russia economically. Uh, But um, I'm sure there is a certain element of it. Uh, But I think more uh, regarding in terms of the economic impact is we're seeing that on our shelves yeah. in and, our and, supermarkets. And so w- I think we're unfortunately feeling more of the um, of the blame. Oh, as in we can see we're feeling more of that. We're struggling basically, mm-hmm. as not as much as Russians will be. Mm. Well, we don't really know because you know we don't know the impact with internally in Russia. Um, and I, I feel that initially when the conflict first started and Europe, uh, along with, uh, well, I say Europe, the UK and the US imposing these financial sanctions and uh, limiting the export of Russian uh, energy uh, to Europe, US and the UK uh, and further afield, that I think they wanted... Uh, that impact to severely cripple the Russian economy. Yeah. 
Um, but at the time, Russia has increased, and in fact, uh, it previously had increased its own reserves of gold. So they themselves, uh, under Putin, have been able um, to, to sustain this because it, it costs a lot of money to sustain a war, right? Yeah. And especially if your major exports to uh, the industrialized uh, you know, countries uh, outside of Russia are your energy, yeah. yeah, predominantly your energy, then, you know, you would have thought that would cripple it and plus financial institutions. But unfortunately, you know, it seems to be going on. So, you know, we don't know why. Uh, you know, how long will this conflict uh, um, carry on? Because, you know, to my mind, it doesn't seem to have or it doesn't have that uh, impact upon Russia uh, and, you know, changing uh, the way Putin is 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 viewing mm. this conflict with the Ukraine. Mm. But to speak more regarding this, <coughs> excuse me, we're joined by our first guest of this afternoon, uh, Igor Lukes. Professor Igor Lukes is a professor of history and international affairs at Pardee School of Global Studies. Peace be upon you, Professor uh, Igor. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. It's my pleasure. So we're looking at the Russian sanctions and actually the impact on our daily lives and, you know, to see as if, you know, if they are as effective as uh, first thought. Now, economic sanctions were imposed uh, as Vladimir Putin uh, launched his war against the Ukraine. Now, these sanctions produced uh, or produce a significant synergy effect, uh, we're led to believe. Now, what are your main concerns regarding these sanctions? My main concern about the sanctions is that they need to last. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the fall and winter, which is upon us really, many countries will be tempted to avoid any sort of hardship by fudging the sanction regime. Mr. Putin, I think, was really surprised at the united manner of Western response to his illegal and criminal war on Ukraine. Now the point is to maintain that unity. Mm. So, you know, it's maintaining that unity and, you know, going through the hardship of, you know, autumn and winter. But um, we, say, for instance, in the UK, uh, as with a lot of European countries, are facing in October uh, a re-evaluation of the energy price cap. And domestically, I know for sure, uh, you know, our average fuel bills will have quadrupled. Now, whether this is you know, predominantly a uh, consequence of the sanctions uh, that are taking place, I mean... You know, that's asking a lot of the domestic population to, 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 to take that. So, you know, do you think that these sanctions are actually working? Uh, because they didn't produce an immediate collapse of the Russian economy, as I pointed out earlier on, uh, and haven't, you know, changed his policies. Because, if anything, he's, you know, entrenched, or he, being Vladimir Putin, is entrenching himself even further or securing his positions within the Ukraine? Well, if, if you set the bar so high as you've done, 
then of course the sanctions are not working. Mm -hmm. No sanctions, however, were ever expected to produce an immediate collapse of the largest country on this planet. Russia, after all, is the biggest country in the world. And it has, as you've noticed in your uh, noted in your introduction, it's a country that sits on an enormous reservoir of energy. Mm-hmm. It can it can export to the whole world. And Putin certainly wants the world to think that the sanctions are not working. That they, in fact, as you've just noted, harm the West. In fact, the Yale School of Management studied this very question, studied the impact of Western sanctions on Russian economy, and it found that the sanctions very much work, Mm -hmm. uh, despite the bravado that, that you hear from the Kremlin. Just consider one item, that the foreign companies that have voluntarily left uh, uh, the Russian Federation amounted to 40% of Russia's GDP. Now, this won't necessarily show the next week, but it is bound to be felt in the long term. Mm. But do you think, uh, Professor, that um, point taken, you know, the sanctions don't work overnight. It's it's a, it's a kind of like a long haul. Will popular sentiment uh, or can popular sentiment within Russia domestically actually change you know change the decision of you know the president to to pull out of the Ukraine I don't dare to predict that <laughs> I really don't and and we know from from history insofar that the past is a reliable guide for the future but we know from the past that whenever serious hardship was imposed upon a country, it hardly ever resulted in the collapse of that odious regime. On the contrary, people kind of rallied around the flag, both good and bad. One can think about uh, Churchill rallying the Brits after the disasters of, of, of uh, in the summer of 1940, Uh, uh, people felt strengthened rather than weakened. And uh, unfortunately, the same worked on the other side of the ethical scale when the Allies bombed the Third Reich to smithereens. um, There was no uprising against Hitler. People simply carried on. Mm -hmm. So we need to take this into consideration. And I certainly don't dare to predict how the Russian public will react uh, at the next um, election time uh, after it experiences uh, months or years of empty stores. Um, But that is the only tool we have, short of war, to put pressure on the Kremlin leadership in order for it to change the course of its conduct. Professor Igor, I mean, these Western sanctions against Russia, it it brings, um, of course, a cost of the living crisis with it, which lead us to, um, I mean, which has led us to a much worse economic situation. Is this the consequences of 
our own actions? Is there any alternative solution? Instead of maybe if we were to remove the sanctions and try to negotiate for peace, would that be a more viable option? Yeah, well, <laughs> first of all, we're not the ones who can negotiate for peace because we're not Ukrainians. Uh, the Ukrainian territory, Ukrainian sovereignty is not ours to to give away. And I think that we in the West need to decide what sort of a world we wish to live in. It might be very tempting, as you allude, to think that Ukraine is a faraway country. We know really nothing uh, about it. We don't really need to know anything about it uh, to carry on with our daily lives. After all, Putin isn't murdering people in Birmingham. So what do we care, right? But this attitude will only encourage him and it will encourage others like him. And the crisis will keep degenerating further. By opposing him now, we seek not only to sanction him for the crimes already committed in Ukraine, we seek to indicate that this sort of behavior is not acceptable. And we therefore, through the sanctions, seek to prevent similar developments that could take place much closer to home. So is it, so in your opinion, is it better to then keep, continue to provide ammunition to Ukraine and continue? Absolutely. But then why not, why not try and make a way for, for negotiations? Why, why, not, well, why not continue <laughs> the war when you know people are dying? Why, why continue to, you could say, I mean, poke the bear? Well, um, how do you stop the war? The only person who can stop the war is not the West, which is helping the Ukrainians to defend themselves. The one person who can stop the war right now is Mr. Putin, because he's the one who committed an act of illegal aggression against a sovereign country. But why did Peace Putin do that, though? Did Putin, well, because NATO expanded, <laughs> when NATO started to expand, was that not a reason, where, and they promised that they won't expand, is that not... They did not, first, <laughs> first of all, they did not promise it, and they could not have promised it. If you look at the NATO treaty, it contains Article 10, and Article 10 says that any country is free to apply for membership if it agrees with the principles, the defensive principles of NATO. Okay? So NATO could not have promised this is, this is Russian propaganda. Uh, no one could have promised that NATO would never expand in the future and make that promise in 1990 or 1991. That conversation pertains to the prospect of unifying Germany and it was in the context of that conversation that Jim Baker, the then Secretary of State of the United States, told uh, Gorbachev that NATO was not going to move its installations within Germany from the West to the East. That is the commitment that was made uh, verbally, by the way, not in writing. It never, it never 
involved a promise against a future expansion of NATO. Mm. That is an, an, a, um, a, a pretext. So you could, you could say, used. Professor, that that's an extension or um, to extrapolate that condition from Jim Baker and or the, the, you know, the verbal agreement between Jim Baker and Gorbachev at the time of not moving more installations uh, closer to, you know, because of the, the break or the breakdown or the of the wall coming down in Germany. However, you know, I can I'm not condoning the actions of uh, Vladimir Putin, but to have, you know, someone as somewhat of a buffer, a neutral country of Ukraine, then suddenly turn and say, look, you know what, we are going to look to join NATO. Thus having, instead of having a neutral country buffering uh, between Russia and Europe, you now, if you are looking through Russia's viewpoint, have your enemy at your door. So, like I say, I'm not condoning his actions because you know thousands of people have died because of it. But there is a you know, a, a raison d'être for his actions. Yes. Well, let me with all due respect, disagree with the premise of what you've just said. Mm -hmm. First of all, NATO is a defensive organization. No one intends to commit an act of aggression against Russia. This is a strategic lie that Putin advances in order to frighten his subjects into obedience. The West is a bunch of sharks that are circling around uh, this gentle little flower of Russia on, on some tiny island. And it's the, the sharks wish to devour us with all the um, ethical and uh, moral problems of the West coming here and so on. That simply is not true. Secondly, the issue at stake is not whether, as you suggested, Ukraine can join NATO. That's not going to happen anytime soon, for decades maybe, for the simple reason that Ukraine doesn't control its own territory. And if a country has no sovereign control over its own land, it cannot be accepted into NATO. The, the question that triggered all these crises that ultimately resulted in the war had to do with whether Ukraine could conceivably sometime in the future apply for membership in the European Union, thus escaping from the deathly grip of Putin's Russia. Mm. And finally, I would say, some of the points that you've uh, listed the points that are often advanced by by uh, uh, the present um, um, uh, land landowner of uh, the landlord of the Kremlin, um, the, those those points about how the uh, sort of creeping of NATO closer and closer into the safety zone of Russia, those points are always used to the hilt. Uh, by by uh, Putin. But consider, if NATO had not expanded into the Baltic countries and into Poland, 
just just to name those two specific uh, um, 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 entities, the, the three Baltic republics and Poland, imagine how that uncertainty as to whether Putin would ever stop if he had reached the western border, but westernmost border of Ukraine, how how much more tense the present situation would have been. I think we would have been already in something like World War Three, because mm-hmm. the Estonians, Latvian, Lithuanians, and certainly the Poles would have been unwilling to wait peacefully to be attacked. There would have been, uh, you know, um, outbursts of violence that could quickly escalate. Mm. Therefore, the advancement of NATO and therefore the clarity of, of, of borders, you know, who owns what, it stabilizes the situation rather than the opposite. Having good fences makes good neighbors. Mm. And keeping to your borders, I suppose. Well, Professor, oh, it's, that's very important. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on the it Drive Time Show. It always is. Thank you. Thank you for Have a good day. Bye-bye, sir. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, yeah, very... Uh, so, Tahir, do you think we are... Uh, what's the word veiled right our eyes are veiled with this putin propaganda it would be but we everything's blocked Mm. we don't have access to russian media Mm. online everything's blocked so where are we getting uh, how be how are we being veiled by our our judgment is being clouded by russian propaganda we don't have well you know i mean if we look at say for instance domestically right and i i can somehow or to some extent support the argument of professor igor lukes here that um western media has been infiltrated so say for instance let's look at the relationship of our current prime minister who i believe is on holiday but our current prime minister uh, who has resigned uh, mr boris johnson and his relationship with uh, a certain lebedev who owns mm. newspapers mm. so you can say you know kind of like you know one plus one is equal to two right if you've got a russian owning a uh, a news a media agency in the uk then over a certain period of time, you are, if anything, going to get, I wouldn't say pro-Putin, but, you know, kind of like, uh, what's the word? Window dressing of the situation. Mm. And I can understand that. And plus, I believe that the MI5 did report, or sorry, MI6 did report to the then Prime Minister of the t- at the time, Theresa May, that uh, there had been... Um, Russian influence regarding the referendum back in 2016. So you can see that there is that kind of, or there is a footprint of Russian influence mm. in the West. I'm just playing the devil's advocate here. And I mean, yes, I mean there has been there has been, of course, news about this. But but also I see, but you can, right, if we Western look, destabilizing of 
countries as well. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the US, for example, mm-hmm. what they've been doing for God knows how many years, going country by country, overpowering overpowering the the, the government, mm, destabilizing destabilizing the, the country for their personal gain, for personal gain, or not their personal gain, but for gains who we don't know about. And I mean, even now, I mean, I think it's where is it? It's, um, it was just a, there was a video which came out just a few days ago of how the US. I think it's Syria is still taking out thousands, thousands of gallons of uh, of oil mm-hmm. um, for, of, of course, their own personal gain. Right. And I mean, so this w- there's not one single person or one single nation that you can lie the blame with. True, true. But to try and do that or trying <laughs> to explain actually the impact on our daily lives of these Russian uh, sanctions, all these sanctions against Russia. We're joined by our next guest of the day, William Scott Lucas. Now, William uh, is a professor of international politics at the University of Birmingham and founder of EA Worldview. Peace be upon you, uh, Professor. Uh, Professor Lucas, thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Salam alaikum. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Wa alaikum salam. So uh, we're talking about, you know, the Russian sanctions and the actual impact on you know, the people at home and abroad. You know, do you think these economic sanctions on Russia uh, are actually working? Uh, because they didn't produce an immediate collapse of the Russian economy and haven't, you know, changed Putin's plans as yet. Well, let's start with some fundamentals because it's a great question. And the first is just speaking from the question of the effectiveness of sanctions. As san- <clears throat> sanctions don't provide a quick fix mm-hmm. and you should never think about them as providing a quick fix. In the case of South Africa, in the fight against apartheid, it took years mm. for sanction to have an effect. Um, in the case of, uh, for example, Palestine, uh, we're still waiting for some type of sanctions on Israel to have an effect, uh, even if those are more at the level of the private rather than the public. For example, the divestment campaigns from Israel. Um, in the case of sanctions on Myanmar, for example, uh, you know, it's a difficult situation. It, it's, it's been hard to, to, as it were, curb that military junta. Mm-hmm. But in the case of Russia, yes, they have had an effect, you know, if you evaluate where the facts are, and that is the Russian economy um, contracted by 4%. Uh, its GDP, you know, 4% decline uh, since the start of the year. It is back at the level of 2018. That economy has been set back to that. It's automobile manufacturing down by more than 90%. Other sectors between 50, 75 percent lost, because the reality is is that uh, much of the, you know, international involvement in the Russian economy is gone. Uh, it's not just the case of the sanctions; it's the case of international companies, hundreds of international companies that have left. It's the case of Russia being unable to get the components that it needs to keep its manu- its industries going. The case of Russia not getting the technology that it needs. Now. Russia is on a wartime economy right now. It's calling on its citizens to make sacrifices, and many of them do support uh, the invasion of Ukraine. So Russia will not collapse tomorrow, and Vladimir Putin will not leave power tomorrow, nor will he give up on his invasion, even though it's run into difficulties. So we have to be clear-eyed about this, but at the same time, to put the very simple counterfactual to you, um, had there been no sanctions on uh, Russia, had there been no assistance to Ukraine, it is quite likely that Putin would have succeeded, uh, despite the resistance of Ukrainians, that he would have been able to overrun Kiev and get rid of the government 
that he would have effectively swallowed up much of that country because his gamble was this, that he was gambling that people would not stand behind Ukraine. They mm-hmm. would not stand, you know, whether it was Europe, the United States, Asia, uh, Africa, that they would just walk away, that they would say it was all the U.S. to blame for this, that it was all NATO to blame for this. A bit like uh, Crimea and Belarus, basically. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the blueprint was 2014, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, the pro-Russian president, Viktor Yanukovych, was not removed by a U.S. coup. That's a falsehood. We need to be very clear. He was removed by Ukrainians who protested against corruption, who wanted more political representation, who wanted reforms. The Americans did not name the Ukrainian government after that. What did happen immediately after Yanukovych was removed is that Russia hit back. They seized Crimea. They seized part of eastern Ukraine. They put their proxies in there. Uh, There were some very bloody battles back in 2014. And by and large, the international community stood aside and let that happen. Putin thought the same thing would happen eight years later. Mm. So, Professor, with these sanctions, you know, and you know, like you said, you you know, they they have done. I mean, Russian GDP is you know decreased by four percent, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, back to or its economy has shrunk to uh, you know the size that it was um, in twenty eighteen. Right. But you know, to what extent can we in the West? still you know keep this up because it's hurting us at home as well now that i mean that's the next phase of of putin's gamble as it were let me preface this by saying we would have had rising energy prices in the uk anyway Mm -hmm. and indeed we actually have a relatively low dependence on russian gas uh whereas germany was taking 55 percent of its gas from russia Mm -hmm. you know we were in the single digits Uh, our problems are pretty much made at home for reasons i can explain but yes, I mean, the, 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 everyone in the world is going to feel the effect of this, the shocks of this, because Putin's invasion has disrupted food supplies. Mm-hmm. It is disrupting energy supplies. It's disrupting other supply lines. And again, that's his gamble. His gamble was, look, if I can blockade the Ukrainian ports and I cut off food, for example, to Africa, they'll walk away from this. They'll, they'll support me because I will promise to get them food if they accept my occupation. Mm-hmm. That hasn't really worked, which is why we have had a deal to start getting some of the Ukrainian grain out of the Black Sea ports. So now what does Putin do, especially as we go into winter? So probably about four months away, it's going to be freeze people. And now obviously not necessarily freezing people in some areas like the Middle East or in Africa, but freezing people in Europe. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, and you can already see chinks of this, uh, for example, the pro-Russian leader, Viktor Orban, even though Hungary is a European Union country, Orban's really going to start siding with Putin. But the rest of the European countries, do they continue to stand firm, not just providing military aid, uh, but providing vital economic assistance and providing the moral assistance that you know really has sort of bolstered Ukraine to the point where it not only has stood up against the invasion, but it has reclaimed territory and is likely to take, reclaim more territory in the months to come. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, from your opinion, although, you know, we were going to find ourselves uh, victims, let's say, of the energy price cap, uh, and it's not just us, it's Europe as well. um, You know, do you, I mean, having that in mind, you know, do you think fixing a price cap will help then? You know, is the government, I mean, is, say, the UK government doing enough to protect its people? 
Oh, look, and that's a key question. Let me just preface this by saying that I think, by and large, most people will maintain their support against the Russian aggression. I think mm-hmm. Putin is miscalculating because as much as we are having to sacrifice here, I think most people see that the people who are making the real, the, the biggest sacrifice are Ukrainians. Mm. Simple as that. But in terms of what needs to be done domestically, look, I, we could have an entire hour on this. The fact mm. is, is that the government, the current government, walked us into this mess when it effectively had a deregulated energy market. So you had all the companies that came into the market when gas was relatively cheap, relatively small companies that weren't necessarily on a secure financial footing. When gas prices started to rise last year, and they started to rise months before the Russian invasion, Mm -hmm. those companies were not in a position to really cover the cost of increased supply when there was a cap on how much they could charge Mm -hmm. um, customers. And that's why I think more than 30 companies went to the wall. Mm-hmm. Now, even without the Ukrainian invasion, you could see that what we were facing was the fact that we had a shock in our energy market as it was realigning itself. And what the government did on top of that is just simply having really failed to manage prices effectively, because it isn't an all or nothing thing. Mm-hmm. You could have actually moved the cap up a bit. It just all of a sudden said, we're going to lift the cap by this incredibly large amount. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's and, it's quadrupling your yeah. your your energy bill, and yeah, that's just yeah. yeah and, for and, most households, about forty two percent of households in the UK, too much. That's energy poverty, and we mm. need to be clear eyed about it. And what the government did is, is they just simply did that with absolutely no plan for buffering the consequences of that. So what happened is, after the prices start to rise, then they threw a bit of money at this, a bit of support, and said, "Well, we've done our bit." That support didn't cover the amount of the rises that have taken place this spring, and it certainly won't cover the amount of the further rise that we're going to have this autumn when the cap is removed. Um, so it was a case of a deregulated market with a price cap, a very strange contradiction, you might mm-hmm. think, there, yeah. and then lifting the price cap where everything was unregulated and having no stru- government structure in place to deal with the consequences. It was the equivalent of the financial crash, well, not crash, we didn't necessarily crash, we almost did, mm-hmm. but it was the financial implosion more than a decade ago, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. except the government moved much more quickly to save banks, and you can guess why, than it has moved really to save basically the livelihoods of people who are less well off in this country. So, you know, as a follow-up on that question, Professor, do you think that, I mean, I don't think there is political will with the current government to do this, but would renationalizing, you know, uh, the energy um, industry would that, you know, take away this 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 problem? You you, you don't have to renationalize completely. Again, mm-hmm. it's not an all or nothing question. But you bring back effective regulation. I right. mean, the you know the United States, which is a fairly about as deregulated as you get mm-hmm. in in the world, and you know you have regulations of utilities. You have codes of conduct, as it were, that electricity companies have to follow, that water companies have to follow. Um, you have to, in other words, abide by some type of regulations when you set the prices. Now, the government's got to basically come back into working with utility companies to put in a long-term system which prevents this from happening in the future. Now, there are other short-term steps we can talk about, certainly a windfall tax, 
with a redistribution of that tax mm-hmm. to help people who are less well off, that should be considered. Certainly, there should be reconsideration of effectively what you consider really the corporate tax structure mm-hmm. in the UK, which includes not only energy companies but other companies. But you will notice that the current two people who are vying to become the next party leader of the Conservatives and thus Prime Minister are talking about lowering corporate taxes. Mm-hmm. So, no, I I think you have to get the adults in the room for a grown-up conversation. (laughs) And uh, I'm not sure that occurs really in the next few months. Well, you know, on that that point, you know, uh, Professor, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on the uh, Drive Time Show and giving us uh, your opinions there uh, about the adults, that's for sure. Thank you so much. Peace to you and all your listeners. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK uh, if you think there are two adults in this studio. To talk to, that is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, you can tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK, uh, like you just said. I mean, this, um, I mean the, the issue with, with Russia and Ukraine, it, it's, it's maybe, it's not really, you can say, the main point of discussion as it should be. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the problems that we're facing here mm-hmm. with with the, live, the with the cost of living mm-hmm. and the problems that the difficulties that people are facing, I mean, he spoke about um, maybe not just nationalizing certain. Yeah, it's not an all or nothing. Yeah, decision, and it's just regulation within the energy industry because you know we see uh, you know these energy companies publishing billions right yeah. of profit uh, which are going to shareholders um which is fine because you know that's the whole point of um a capitalist economy but you know when you have uh core utilities which you know you can't really just let go of yeah uh and just as as a as a i suppose a comparative if we look at edf okay EDF in, in, in France is government or part, I don't know exactly what percentage, but state-owned. Yeah. The increase on the energy price cap was 4%. Uh, and you know, EDF, not a state-owned uh, company over here uh, in the UK, the increase was 54%. So it's yeah. quite stark. But um, we're actually you know, moving away from the Russian sanctions here. We're joined by our... Uh, third guest of the day, John Stenning. Now, John is the head of environment uh, at Cambridge Econometrics. He specializes in understanding and measuring the social and economic implications of energy and climate policy. So, hopefully, he's going to bring us back to the conversation regarding uh, Russian sanctions. Peace be upon you, John. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, you know, we were, were talking about uh, the cost of living crisis and I suppose that is the impact uh, or partially the impact of the sanctions that have been uh, put upon Russia. Now, as the uh, price cap on energy bill allows prices to fall, you know, many efficient uh, companies or we just spoke to Professor, uh, uh, sorry, Professor, I'm just uh, our last guest, actually, uh, Professor Lucas, regarding the deregulation within the energy uh, uh, within the energy industry. So, you know, many efficient companies were bankrupted. Now, should the government actually, you know, get into the the, the energy market and regulate 
or you know, introduce regulation in pricing? I think, first of all, it's important to, to think about what the price cap was designed to do. Mm-hmm. So the price cap was introduced um, to cap the profits of energy suppliers, essentially the, the amount of profit they can make on each individual consumer. And it was done at a time of, of very stable energy prices. Um, and what this meant was that energy suppliers knew uh, how much the maximum they'd be able to charge customers for each of those six-month periods that the, that the cap applies for before it's re-evaluated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and under this kind of system, those firms, the NG suppliers, have the opportunity to plan ahead, essentially, right? To to either buy energy on the futures markets with so with guaranteed prices for future delivery of energy, or they could have hedged against against future changes in energy prices. Now, what we saw uh, last year in 2021 was was that most of the firms that went bust didn't do enough of this. Mm-hmm. They essentially, um, you know, they they were assuming the sun was going to shine forever. Um, uh, and that was really their undoing. What we're seeing now is that the price cap is is serving to create space, right? It's creating some space for consumers. They have a little bit of advance notice of these price increases. Obviously, they're they, you know very very substantial price increase, but a little bit of notice is still better than no notice. Um, and it's giving. And I think we're seeing this very much in in the news at the moment. Um, it's giving government a little bit of of time and space to work out what the right policy response is. Um, and we've seen that, let's say, very much today, with um, uh, the news cycle really being dominated by um, discussion of Labour's proposal mm-hmm. um, on on uh, how on how it can uh, keep prices down for consumers. Um, so it, it's serving a purpose now. It may not be the purpose it was originally created for, but it is still, I think, serving a useful purpose. A key challenge, of course, is going to be that over time, as prices start to adjust downwards, um, mm-hmm. which you know, is expected to happen over the next 12 months, that that we we have a system that allows um, prices to adjust quickly enough so that we can relieve pressure on consumers. We obviously don't want consumers to be stuck paying high prices at a time at which actually the wholesale prices are lower than that. Um, and that, that's a key reason why Ofgem has shortened the cap fix from the six months that it was down to the three months that it's now operating at. Mm. So I think that's a, that's a key concern. Mm. Um, how, how can we stop inflation from rising? <laughs> I mean, it's... it's <laughs> Sorry, I was laughing, yeah, John, because I, I think we're, we're suddenly, uh, you know, transported to the Bank of England. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, there, there are two key drivers right, of, of current inflationary pressures. Mm-hmm. Um, one is uh, sort of supply chains and, and shortages and, uh, you know, tightness in the labour market. And a lot of this can be linked to the emergence from COVID restrictions and, um, uh, you know, and, and impacts of Brexit um, and the impacts that has on trade. Um, the second part is energy prices. Um, and you know, energy prices are sort of you know increasingly dominating this discussion, um, and and it's it's a really really difficult problem to solve, right? Um, really, fundamentally, the only way you can do this is by cutting the energy prices that are paid, and that's the energy prices that are paid by consumers, who are obviously under the off-gen price cap, and that's obviously where a lot of the political discussion is, but also those paid by businesses. Because if businesses are paying higher costs, that ultimately feeds through to consumers. I mean, consumers also end up, you know, as we're seeing with these inflationary pressures, being they're they're paying higher costs for other goods and services. So, so fundamentally, to address that, what you really need is to cut those prices. Mm. So it has to be effectively. It can't be just in the uh, you know the realms of the Bank of England, just increasing bank base rates to control inflation. Because I. 
personally believe that you know it's it's a situation where the monetary uh, the MPC the monetary uh, policy committee hasn't seen this type of inflation uh, because it's several factors include I mean you know there's certain things that we cannot do without because uh, in the RPI you have a basket of goods yeah and you know subsequently I mean in the you know this year we've seen increases in fuel not just fuel prices but you know at the petrol pump. Uh, we've seen increases at, uh, you know, with our utility bills. So, you know, these things we cannot do without uh, as a household, say, for instance. Um, whilst, you know, some goods which are, you know, make up the RPI, you can, you know, go without. So, yeah, you know, with the Bank of England just having interest rates as their only, you know, uh, fiscal tool, it doesn't seem to be enough. Doesn't you know the government need to actually you know come out and you know do something else regarding that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. So, so if we think about what happens when the Bank of England raises interest rates, um, fundamentally, what it does is it, it decreases spending and mm-hmm. investment in the economy because it makes saving more attractive. Um, and, and what that does is, is it does drag down inflation. Um, but it does it mostly by um, depressing economic activity. So, as I said, you know, reducing that spending and therefore reducing economic activity. Um, and there are clear, clearly risks associated with that. I mean, it already looks like we are likely to be heading into a recession, mm-hmm. um, and and these kinds of measures are likely to make that a, make that a little bit worse. Um, and and fundamentally as you were kind of getting at, it doesn't address the underlying drive of inflation in this mm. case, the energy prices. Um, and really, yeah, this is why it's such a, a, a tricky issue to deal with, because a lot of the tools that are available, to certainly to the bank, aren't well suited to address this kind of issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry to cut us short, because I would rather you know go on regarding that, but we're coming up to the five o'clock news. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, uh, John. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. So, you know, we've got a minute. Are there any Islamic ways of, you know, just halting this catastrophe, this economic catastrophe that we're we're heading, well, we find ourselves in? Dahe. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's a, of course, there's a number of things which the, which the Quran speaks about, which Islam speaks about um, on the concept of, of, I mean, of the economic system which which the world of course is is currently using um and we have um i mean we can talk about zakat which mm-hmm. which islam has prescribed yeah. one of the pillars of faith um in which that money where there's a certain percentage of your wealth which is then uh, taxed and then redistributed, redistributed in, in yeah. society and everyone is taxed according to their means mm-hmm. so if you're earning more you'll be taxed more mm-hmm. uh, but it's the same percentage so everyone will feel the kind, a same kind of pinch. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I mean, if we're if we're looking at the problems, the Islam also um, encourages that leaders should be helping their people, mm-hmm. and that is the problem that we're facing at the moment. That number one issue is that the leaders should be helping as much as possible to try and relieve the pressure which people are facing. And hopefully, we can talk about this maybe. More after the five o'clock news, which we're yeah. coming up to right now. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. 
Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, uh, Talib Man and Imam Tahir Khalid. So we were talking in the first hour regarding uh, Russian sanctions and the impact that it's got on the global economy and domestically. And you know what can we do? And we, you know, with all our guests, uh, we had spoken regarding government intervention, uh, policies that the government can look at uh, to help and alleviate the situation whilst keeping the sanctions against Russia. But in terms of Islam, and we touched on, upon it just before the five o'clock news, the impact if we, had u- if we go to uh, using zakat, yeah. you know, one of the pillars of Islam, what would that be, Tahir? So... Just explaining zakat. I mean, whatever you pay as interest. That it, I mean, in the Holy Quran, uh, chapter thirty, verse thirty-nine to forty, God Almighty states that whatever you pay as interest, um, that it may increase the wealth of the people. It does not increase in the sight of God. But whatever you give in zakat, seeking the favor of God, it is these who increase their wealth manifold. Basically, interest is forbidden mm-hmm. in Islam. Uh, so that is why. Um, Muslims are, of course, I mean, prohibited from taking interest, uh, yeah. and of course, and then giving interest on top as well. Um, and then, if we look at the 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 solution which Islam provides, that is zakat. Instead of interest, it is zakat which which Islam has proposed as a solution. And now, a Muslim is encouraged to partake in charity, and he's enjoined. In, in to give zakat and is reminded of the importance of giving gifts. Now the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that a Muslim should give gifts as it promotes love between people. The Holy Quran mentions frequently the importance of giving zakat as it provides for the expenditures of the government and fulfills the needs of the poor. Now his Holiness, the, the Global Caliph of the Amdi Muslim community, has explained this time and again and in one sermon he explained that no other religion competes with Islam in that it makes provisions for all sectors of the society. And today there's so much turmoil in the world, only money alone cannot provide peace and we must help the needy out of what is given to us to gain the pleasure of God. And we must not regard the poor as an inferior being but guard their self-esteem. He further states that God Almighty draws our attention to one of the most primary reasons why the downfall of an economy occurs, and that is interest. Interest in Islam is forbidden for the sole reason that it makes a poor man even poorer. If we compare the shortcomings of participating in interest with the advantages of giving to the poor, we see that by spending in the way of God, we gain his pleasure, we promote the establishment of peace in the society, and we gain eternal paradise in the hereafter. Interest contributes to the destruction of peace in the society. The poor man's condition keeps worsening, whereas the rich amass more wealth. And interest causes money to accumulate within a group of wealthy people mm-hmm. and creates an abyss of debt for the poor from which there is no escape. And this is what we are currently and seeing. Exactly. This is word for word what we are currently seeing. I mean, who would have thought that we would have... Um, energy poverty, right? Yeah. As a, as a as a you know as a phrase, mm. food poverty as a phrase, maybe in third world countries, but not here in the UK. Yeah. Uh, so bear that in mind. So and, with that, and sorry, just to yeah. just to add on, 
I mean, what fifteen hundred years ago, Islam provided the solution, mm-hmm. um, and maybe it is now time for people to really hearken to the word of what of what mm-hmm. Islam says. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, the, the solutions because if the government solutions aren't working, if the unions are being shut down, mm-hmm. if they're not being heard, where I mean, they have a legal right to be heard. Mm-hmm. They're, if they, I mean, even even I think Liz Truss was saying that she wants to try and. Yeah, in a way, try and shut them down. Shut them down. Um, and nothing else is working. We're seeing the problems continue. Well, to we're rise. seeing that this type of economic uh, system, you know, the free market capitalist system, um, is not working because there are big um, factors at hand. This yeah. Ukraine, uh, Russian conflict. Um, we're talking about you know in this country the aftermath of Brexit. We're talking about you know, a, f- a whole you know, um, plethora of factors which are affecting the economy. Mm. But actually, ultimately, it's about taxation, yeah. right? And it's about redistributing from the wealthy to the poor yeah. and having an equitable solution to society. And you know, how can you make the poor poorer? Well, we're seeing it nowadays, yeah. right, in our economy. But with that, we'll draw a close to that first uh, hour um, of of uh, uh, the sanctions of Russia. We'll go to a very, very short break. Uh, please join us after the break where we will be talking about teachers. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Taliban, and Imam Tahir Khalid. So we're going to jump straight into our second topic of the day, which is teachers. Um, you know, a, a long sought out profession. And, uh, you know, I would say it's a vocation, like being a doctor. Mm. You know, uh, it's nothing um, in terms of, you know, you don't pick it as uh, a career whereby you're going to get financial remuneration as such. But you're you're touching people and you're developing them as kids and you see them, you know, growing into individuals, adults. And, you know, you're, you're kind of like... I suppose investing in the future mm-hmm. and Islam has given a lot of uh, importance to your teachers so much so I mean uh, that they've they've they're akin to your parents mm-hmm. uh, in the sense of however what they teach you the, what they train you they nurture you uh, and of course you spend a lot of hours in the day with with your teachers um, mm-hmm. so Islam has given has placed a lot of respect for them um, and because of that I mean here on the voice of Islam we've also uh, we're speaking about this for the next hour uh, but also on our, I believe it's our Instagram page. Yeah. Um, we are we put out uh, a little shout out that if you can uh, for uh, those that are following us, um, and we've quoted, give a shout out to your favorite teacher. Mm-hmm. And a few people have given us some answers in, 
Um, Anam has given a shout out to a teacher, Shazi Ahmed in Croydon. Uh, Faiza has given a shout out to Miss Wingate, who is my daughter's preschool teacher, and she went above and beyond. Mashal mm-hmm. uh, has given a shout out for Miss Obels. Uh, Obels. Mm-hmm. Um, Ahmed Noreen for her chemistry teacher, who taught me chemistry on uni, leaving uni level before uni, and it paid later. Seher has given. Um, uh, the, has given the name of the fourth caliph yes. of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed. A great teacher. Uh, who is a universal teacher. Yes. Um, and uh, Sabaithway has given uh, her name of a Talimul Quran class teacher from Pakistan who taught her the translation of the Holy Quran in Urdu. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you are on our Instagram page, you can give your responses in um, about the teachers who have, in a way, changed your lives. Talib, mm-hmm. which teacher changed your life? Graham Wade. Graham Wade. Yeah, he was my uh, A-level maths teacher at secondary school uh, in Geoffrey Chaucer down in Canterbury. Um, really kind of like, not just taught me uh, the you know, the basics of mathematics, pure mathematics, but uh, just kind of like pointed me in the right direction as to you know what to do with the rest of my life. So a real factor, I mean, you can tell. You know, I could tell you, I mean, how many years ago was that, right, for me? Mm. I'm 54. So that's like 34, 36 years ago. And that name just came straight out. Wow. So, yeah, Mr. Wade, big shout out to you. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we're going to go to our first guest we have with us on the line, Jack Worth, lead uh, economist um, and school workforce lead, uh, National Foundation for Educational Research. Jack Worth, good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to have you here with us. Now, um, we're going to start with the ENFA, or you can say the National Foundation for Educational Research. Can you please tell us about what your organisation does? Uh, of course, yeah. So we are the leading uh, independent provider of educational research uh, and insight. Uh, and our mission is to uh, create an excellent education for all children uh, and young people uh, in the UK and globally. Hmm. Yeah, good afternoon, Jack. Um, so, yeah, with the current condition for teachers, yeah, I'd, one, one would say is quite deplorable, as with most uh, public uh, service workers, yeah. I mean, the pay rise that's coming, is it enough? I mean, given our current political environment, you know, organizational bias is being brought into the spotlight more than before. Now, how does ENFA ensure neutrality in their research regarding this? Uh, So we're an independent, uh, not-for-profit organization, Mm -hmm. uh, and all of our uh, work is dedicated towards our mission uh, of supporting the education of young people uh, and ensuring uh, an adequate, uh, sufficient supply of high-quality teachers is a really key part of that, uh, of that, uh, of, of education delivery uh, in the UK and across the world. Uh, and that is something we bring independent research insights uh, to, and uh, to understanding uh, the policy context uh, and the practice context hmm. um, in that area. So you know, with that, you know, uh, and with the context of you know the the teacher pay in the UK specifically yeah can you provide some insight you know, to us and our listeners into how you know we compare the UK compares to other countries of similar you know economic and political circumstances I mean 
you know, to be honest, are we doing better or worse than any other, you know, of our peer countries? Um, so, yeah, so there's some evidence on kind of where the UK is uh, in terms of, or where England is specifically in terms of its uh, kind of uh, teacher workforce. Um, so we have uh, one of the lowest, uh, one of the youngest teaching workforces in the whole world. Mm-hmm. So our teachers tend to be uh, young and we have fewer uh, teachers with many, many years of experience. Um, we also tend to have teachers with uh, internet, compared to internationally, um, high workload, uh, so high numbers of working hours and high number of working hours on things that are not teaching, um, but also low job satisfaction. Oh. Uh, and in terms of pay, uh, so we have uh, in England quite a low t- starting salary uh, compared to uh, other countries uh, across the, the OECD. Um, in terms of the uh, pay for more experienced teachers, it tends to be uh, more in line with uh, OECD countries. So there is a very fast pro- progression uh, of, of pay within, uh, within uh, England, uh, but that's something the, uh, the latest proposals, uh, the government proposals in terms of teacher pay have been uh, addressing uh, in terms of uh, giving larger increases to uh, those uh, newer teachers Because, I mean, has your research shown within the UK that there's a higher, I suppose, um, what's the word I'm looking for, turnaround of young uh, teachers uh, in, in, in the workforce? And what I mean by that is that they'll come in because, you know, in their mid-20s to 30s, they'll come in and then literally leave the job because of burnout uh, and, you know, insufficient pay. Yeah, so I think it, it's hard to get uh, definitive evidence on kind of what the turnover rate of, of staff and what the uh, attrition rate of uh, teachers is compared to other countries. But I, I think broadly that's right in terms of we have a very high high workload uh, teaching career at the moment, uh, which you know might be okay when you're in your twenties uh, and, uh, and maybe in your thirties, but it, it, it's hard to sustain for an entire um, career. Um, and so that's one of the reasons we have uh, a high, sorry, uh, the, uh, a very young workforce is that kind of high turnover. So we're losing lots of teachers within the first five years uh, of entering the profession, and then we need to recruit more to, to fill those gaps. And so we're always kind of... Uh, Playing catch-up. Trying, trying to catch up, exactly. Mm. So, you know, is it fair to assume that, uh, as another factor as well, that the UK loses out... You know, on the top talented uh, teachers, yeah, in education, in the education sector, as the you know, it's more attractive to say, for instance, go to Dubai, yeah, and teach abroad, right, uh, as an opportunity because of the a the remuneration, b the actual uh, workload is not as much, um, and actual you know the environment there, uh, the the uh, pupil teacher ratio. You know, I mean, and if this is indeed the case, you know, what sort of increase? I mean, the, you know, the, the, the government has proposed, would that kind of fill that gap? Would that be uh, enough of a carrot, let's say, to stop these teachers going abroad? Yeah, so we, so we don't have very, um, very good data in terms of what proportion of the teachers that get trained every year kind of disappear out of the system 
and either go to, as you say, kind of Dubai international schools across the world, mm-hmm. um, where you know there is a lot of demand for teachers who are trained in the UK, uh, and it's certainly a destination that that, that some uh, do go to uh, and pay as a part of that. And if, as you say, there's, there's other factors as well in terms of the. Uh, maybe the amount of uh, autonomy you have over your uh, working career as a teacher in those countries and maybe the teacher-pupil ratios and the sorts of uh, pupils uh, that you end up teaching and the expectations on you as a teacher. So there's a whole range of factors there and it's certainly uh, a factor. In terms of how much uh, uh, you know the UK system would need to pay to stop some of those teachers doing it, I think it's difficult to say because lots of doing it for lots of different reasons. Um, but it certainly uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't hurt uh, in terms of making sure the the teaching career in England uh, and in the UK is attractive enough to keep uh, large numbers of teachers uh, that, that train here to to stay, because mm, it's that retention uh, that that I suppose the government needs to 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 make it uh, an attractive career that you actually go into and actually have a career path into uh, to have longevity in that field. Yeah, absolutely. Retention is so important to uh, to teachers applying. You know, it's tempting to think, well, how are we going to recruit enough teachers to uh, to keep up? But actually, retaining more teachers, you know, retaining one teacher is is one less teacher you don't have to recruit, which is uh, costly in itself. Um, so retention is is vitally important to ensuring that there are enough teachers. Uh, and if we've got one of the youngest workforces in the world, then we're clearly uh, kind of burning through the teachers apply. Uh, too quickly and can do more to retain teachers longer into their careers mm. and teachers back into uh, the teaching career uh, and just yeah, making sure it's a sustainable and attractive profession for the long term. Jack, I wanted to ask about I mean, overfunded salaries and underfunded schools. Uh, I mean, a big concern when it comes to the education sector is the more impoverished and underprivileged students who naturally come from areas which are less desirable to work in for teachers. Do do, do the schools in these kind of areas suffer more, according to your research? Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's certainly the case in the data that we find that uh, schools in more disadvantaged areas, teaching more disadvantaged pupils, tend to find it on average harder to recruit and retain staff uh, than, in, uh, than in other schools. Um, but that, that's a kind of average, uh, and there's a range of other factors that affect um, how challenging it is to recruit and retain teachers, uh, and also because of the way the funding system is structured uh, in uh, in England, at least the uh, those schools tend to uh, tend to ha- tend to have uh, higher funding on average, um, and so uh, yeah, so it, it still remains a challenge uh, to kind of attract and retain uh, the teachers uh, needed, and you can certainly see that in the data. Mm. And ultimately, what do you think the new government needs to do to rectify the problem? Can can anything be done quickly enough? I think there are things that can be uh, that can be done, uh, but there are a range of kind of short-term factors and uh, and long-term measures. And um, so we've just been through the pandemic, where we saw uh, because of the uh, uncertainty in the wider economy, uh, we saw lots of people actually applying to teaching. That's a real that's a real positive, uh, but that has. Uh, disappeared uh, and we're now expecting to go back to a world where it's difficult to recruit and also difficult to retain teachers but there are things that uh, the government can do uh, to to address this uh, to think about how we create an attractive and sustainable profession for the long term um, in the short term 
uh, one thing the government can do is increase uh, bursaries uh, for teacher training, uh, where these were reduced during the pandemic because there was a big increase in applications. So reversing some of those would help to recruit uh, the teachers that we need, particularly in some of the subjects where it's difficult to recruit anyway, such as physics, computing, chemistry, uh, and also some others like uh, biology and science, where it's, where it's increasingly difficult to recruit the kind of teachers that we need. Um, in the medium term, we need to think about teachers' pay and make sure that it remains competitive. Uh, we keep getting reports about kind of uh, inflation uh, going up and wages uh, going up in the wider economy to, to meet that. So kind of our analysis of where the, gov uh, the government's current proposals are on teacher pay is that they're not enough to keep up, uh, let alone kind of make an inroad on the competitiveness of teacher pay and therefore recruit and retain more teachers. Um, and in the longer term, we need to think about all those factors that are non-financial uh, and that are really important for uh, for work uh, for uh, retention, uh, particularly thinking about workloads. There was a big uh, campaign by the government before the pandemic in terms of reducing teachers' workload. It was kind of a number one uh, priority. That seems to have uh, dropped off the radar a bit. Uh, but coming up with some of those, uh, you know, driving harder again with those kind of campaigns and looking at uh, part-time and flexible working, uh, which schools don't tend to do as well compared to the outside uh, labour market, uh, I think are really important factors for making sure that teaching is uh, attractive for the long term. Mm. Uh, Jack, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon uh, on the Drive Time Show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at uh, Voice of Islam UK. And, you know, when we're looking at, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of even, you know, as, uh, well, I wasn't born a Muslim, but I, I actually learned this this prayer as well. Rabbi Zidani Ilma, uh, which is, uh, oh, my Lord, increase me in knowledge. And that is the crux. I mean, that's taught to, you know, children uh, as they learn. And, uh, you know, it makes it easy to memorize. It encompasses very beautifully the desire we have for children to achieve both spiritual and worldly ambitions. So the importance given to education, the seeking of knowledge is inculcated within us uh, as um, as Muslims uh, right from the very beginning and as uh, as is the respect of those giving us whatever education we receive so you know the teachers have always you know from my point of view um, held a position of esteem mm -hmm. you know, and respect and of course teaching is the one profession that creates all other professions I mean such a simple statement yet there is so much truth to it without teaching no one can become who they want to be when they grow up. Without teachers, there's no educational system, no esteemed universities and nowhere trustworthy to send our kids in hopes of of helping them create a better future. Without teachers, there are no doctors or engineers or architects, just some of the many professions which our society requires to continue progressing. And Islam has, pro has paid considerable attention to, to teachers for their being the first brick in the structure of social development. They guide and develop the behaviours and mentalities of individuals and ultimately communities. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, cared for teachers and showed their elevated standings. Once he passed by two circles of people, one reciting the Qur'an and supplicating to God and the other learning and teaching. The Holy Prophet said both of them are good. 
These people are reciting the Quran and supplicating to God, and if He wills, He will give them, and if He wills, He will withhold from them. And these people are learning and teaching. Verily, I have been I have been sent as a teacher. Then He sat down with them. So we can see again in Islam how much emphasis there has been on uh, on the importance of teachers, um, and uh, and of course with. Um, the respect that Islam gives to teachers as well. Now, coming back to to this issue of 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 the teachers uh, and of course the pay rise, uh, whether it's coming uh, to from the right place and whether it's fulfilling the needs of these teachers, um, the government has of course um, the government has um, in a way um, announced. I mean, I mean, is it enough? Basically, yeah. yeah. Is it enough? And to speak more about this, we're with our with our second guest. Uh, we have Raza Ali, who is a uh, a teacher first. Oh, sorry, teach first ambassador, head teacher who leads the uh, the Chalfont Hills Academy in Luton. Peace be upon you. Uh, peace be upon you, Raza. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Yeah, it's the most pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, and just sorry, just to correct you, where where I'm the head teacher of the Chalk Hills Academy. Chalk, oh, and you're absolutely yeah. Chalk Hills Academy in Luton, and we're part of a wider organisation called the Shared Learning Trust. Shared Learning Trust. Yeah, apologies to give you a full moniker there. So, um, in terms of that, you know, what are your thoughts here? Because we're talking about the pay rise, yeah, that uh, the government has, I suppose to a certain extent, rushed through. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the pay rise and the lack of funding provided to schools to to be able you know, to afford it? Who ultimately will pay the price? Um, that's a very good question. And, and, and let me cut straight to the chase on that. Um, first and foremost, the way it's handled, I think you're absolutely right. It was done in a, in a very last-minute, chaotic way just before the summer holidays and, and head teachers like myself who've already set their budgets budgets prior to going off on the summer holiday, we've now had to forego some of our summer holidays and now go back and redo our budgets simply because these pay rises, we're not given additional money for it. What we've been told is, mm-hmm. yes, your overall pots of money are increasing, but like the government has done previously, unfortunately, they've taken, they've given with one hand, but then they've taken with another. Mm-hmm. Um, they're expecting us to find this money somehow. And head teachers like myself now, what we've had to do is we've had to um, adapt our school budgets and now find money um, to make sure that these pay rises, and let me say it for the record, are absolutely well-deserved and, and long overdue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they have to be paid for. They have to be accounted for. What that ultimately does is that it means then you have to take money away from another budget line mm-hmm. and you have to now uh, put it towards this. So, I mean, let's let's talk about individual circumstances here, Raza. You're the head teacher. So where have you taken it from? So... Because I mean, it is, it's, 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 a, it's, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's basically, it's a juggling act, right? You only have so much. The government has now told you, right, you need to, which is much deserved. I'm not arguing that point, right? Uh, an increase to uh, teacher uh, salaries. But then, you know, if you're not going to actually increase the overall budget that you're giving to a school academy, then how how are you going to do it? Yeah, I think I think the simplest way of answering that question is that 
ultimately you've got to have to take that money from some form of resources. So, for instance, let's say um, it's not just my school. I, I can talk for for head teachers in general here. Head teachers might have planned, let's say, for for example, some building work, mm-hmm. some some building work that they needed to have done in order to make sure that their building is is fit for purpose. And what it might mean now is that by now having to move the money from that scheduled building work to fund these pay rises, it might mean that that building work will now have to be put off uh, and, and done maybe in a year or two years' time. So that's an example of where actually it's not, it's not, it's not solving the problem, it's moving the problem. Mm, it's just kicking the can further down the road, I suppose right exactly that so exactly do you that. do you feel that the pay rise award is, is even actually sufficient right to um attract uh teachers into the workforce and to retain those teachers and you know will it you know will it uh, you know, actually because it's it's not an easy profession and i i i'd go as far as saying it's a vocation as a teacher but you know to have that vocation because i you know i I mean, I am, you know, my co-host uh, hold teachers in, you know, the highest esteem because, yeah, it's through your teachers that you have dreams, right, of aspiring to be something more than you can be, right? They are the people who 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 instigate that 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 dream within the child. So, you know, do you think that that actual pay rise, which is award, uh, has been awarded, is even sufficient enough? I think. Um Look, the first thing is we, as, as educationists, we don't want to be ungrateful. I mm-hmm. think any any form of pay rise, I think there has to be some sort of appreciation. Okay, I think that's the first thing I want to say. Mm. But I think again, going back to the point I made earlier on, there is absolutely you know pure consensus amongst educationists, amongst sort of charities like Teach First, who have all coll- unions as well, who have all collectively lobbied the government and sort of said, look, um, this pay rise, as much as it's appreciated. It's not enough, um, and the simple reason for that is because it doesn't meet or come anywhere near the current level of inflation. The average level of inflation, as it's well documented, is close to 12% mm-hmm. in our country at the moment. So if we're getting a pay rise of 5% or, 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 or 8% for beginner teachers, um, that's still um, minus sufficiently four. <laughs> lower than the 12% inflation. Yeah, minus so, four. So if I'm a teacher, yes, it's going to help me in some respects, but ultimately, I feel like it's more of a um, covering a crack with a plaster. I think longer term, the government needs to look at, okay, what is, a, what is a sufficient level of pay rise? Let's get collective heads around the table and let's think about what is a sufficient level of pay rise that A, the government can afford, but B, that's going to be able to make the impact that it needs to. And the impact that I'm talking about is to attract the best, teachers to the profession and also to keep hold of the the teachers that are already in the profession so so i'm a little bit worried i feel like yes it might you know alleviate some of the pain that we're in at the moment and and sort of dealing with the living costs but is it a longer term solution i don't think it is mm. in terms of longer term solutions I, I really think it's not just pay that we need to consider here you know i interview uh, teachers on a regular basis and i can tell you now for the record um people don't join the teaching profession just for pay yeah just for the money um there are other reasons why people join the profession and the one thing i think the government also need to go away and consider is to improve 
the environment um, that educationists are currently in. Um, let me give you one example. You know, currently we've gone through several different education secretaries. In the last, I think, year or two years alone, I think we've gone through at least three or four education secretaries. And the, every time you have a different education secretary, they come with different visions, different priorities. Mm -hmm. And if you're a teacher whose primary goal is to just go into the classroom and support the young people, the last thing you want is constant change around you. Mm -hmm. You just want to be able to do your job. Yeah, you want to have that consistency at the you know at the helm, I suppose. Yes. Mm. Um, there's a. On a, I mean, as as, as someone you've I mean working in the education sector and seeing everything firsthand, do you feel like conditions have been improving or declining in the last few years? I mean, we've, I mean, from one side we see that okay, yes, the Tories have, there's been a lot of underfunding, um, but have you seen any positives? I think um, I think the one positive that I've that I can recently remember is the decision to postpone Ofsted inspections during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I thought that was um, a, a good decision by 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 you know the, the edu education or the powers to be within education. Um, however, I think going forward there needs to be more conversations between the Department for Education and um, Ofsted and head teachers, I think the missing piece in the jigsaw is conversations happen in the Department for Education or happen in Ofsted, but they miss the people that are on the ground, the, the people that are running the school on a day-to-day -day basis, the people that know um, most or best what it's like to be in schools. They are not always part of the conversation. So I hope that one of the positive moves the government will, will make going forward, certainly come September in this new academic year, would be to give the voices of leaders, of people like Teach First uh, and other equivalent organisations, a louder voice and sort of say, look, guys, you guys are on the ground. What do you think that's going to work? Tell us it as it is. Mm. So on a more personal level, uh, Raza, you know, do you as an educator feel you know, respected, whether it be by your students, your peers, and, you know, by your, uh, you know, by, by, you know, the Department of Education? I think um, by our students, absolutely, 100%. Uh -huh. Again, every head teacher that I've spoken to, um, they've always said that students uh, view schools as a, a place of safety, as a place of happiness, mm -hmm. because a lot of schools up and down the country have worked so hard over the last uh, 18 months and beyond. And students are so appreciative of the fact that when they come into school, they get that support, they get that care. And so, for some of our people, for some of the students that we serve, we know that actually outside of school, their lives are very challenging. Um, so they view school, they appreciate school, and we appreciate them. So absolutely, we get respected by our students. Um, I would say, again, similarly, we get respected um, by our fellow educationists, our peers that are not in government or, or not in Ofsted. So because they have the empathy, they know what each other is going through. Um, so there is a lot of collaboration in my own school, for example. So we're part of a trust. And one of our sort of core values is we're, we're part of we're, we're five schools within our trust and we collectively collaborate because we know that the challenges are common. 
So why try to reinvent the wheel? If we all know we're going through the same challenges, let's talk about it, let's collaborate, let's overcome the challenges together. So I think amongst our peers, there's a lot of that collaboration and innovation. Um, amongst government, uh, I feel like that's where I think some of that respect level, uh, you know, sort of declines. I, I hope that the government respects teachers' views, head teachers' views more. Um, we we know what we're doing, and the last thing we want is a government or educationist coming forward and saying, "Hang on, um, we we want you to do this or we want you to do that," without any proper consultation. Mm-hmm. Let's keep those conversations going, and and I really hope that this new academic year is going to essentially be the the start of more dialogue uh, and more listening to the peoples that are on the ground. Mm. Um, Raza, what is your opinion on, on what can be done to improve the current situation in the education education system here in the UK? What would you personally like to see happen? Uh, oh, that's, I mean, <laughs> that is a very, very big question. Million dollar question, um, <laughs> It's a million-dollar question, and you could have so many different answers or layers of answers. I'll keep it short. Um, firstly, I think, again, I've, I've touched on this several times in this conversation. I think, firstly, uh, funding. I think that is an absolute start starting point. Funding uh, needs to be looked at. It needs to be reviewed. It needs to be increased. It needs to match the challenges uh, the, the the educational landscape that we're currently facing, the economic landscape that we're currently fa- uh, facing. So um, funding needs to be reevaluated, relooked at, etc. Uh, the second thing I would say is that the government, and when I say the government, I'm specifically talking about the Department for Education and Ofsted here. I'm all for accountability. I think it's important that leaders like myself are hold, held to account but it needs to be done in the right way. Mm-hmm. There needs to be acknowledgement that this year and the last few years, schools have gone through a lot of challenges. You know, only this year we've seen, you know, challenges like the heat wave. We've seen, you know, challenges with petrol prices and the cost of living. We've seen Omicron. You know, these are challenges that have directly impacted teachers, has impacted students, has impacted families. And when I sometimes get a sense that there isn't a full acknowledgement of that, um, you know, that that's really, really, you know, upsetting. So mm. hopefully there's going to be a full acknowledgement of that and, and also an acknowledgement that schools are working hard to overcome them. We're not using those things as excuses. We are working really hard to overcome those challenges, but the, the, the powers to be need to acknowledge that. Mm. Um, another area that I think is really, really important, yes, it's been mentioned, but I think let's not forget about it, and that is the uh, mental health and anxiety of young people i think that needs to be looked at it needs to be addressed again or continually needs to be addressed because it's a growing problem um and if we for one second feel like um it's going to go by go away by itself then i think we're deluded i think it really really needs to be looked at by all the different organizations there needs to be some uh, closer collaboration with you know local uh, services social social services local governments um, you know, the NHS, the police, everybody, again, needs to come together, not just schools. I think sometimes it's too easy just to leave everything with schools and say you have to deal with everything. Um, we, need to, we need to be working with all the different other organisations. And finally, finally, um, we need to continually supporting young people from the most disadvantaged and social, socially economic disadvantaged areas. You know, again... I go back to the organization that I work very closely with, Teach First. 
they are constantly positively lobbying government to um, get the best teachers into the most challenging areas. How can we make that attractive? How can we incentivize the best teachers to go and work in the most challenging areas? But also making sure that the people that we have got in education, how are we supporting them in progressing? How are we supporting the people that are the most disadvantaged within education? So I'm talking about people from uh, black and minority ethnic backgrounds that sometimes, you know, in leadership are not, uh, you know, properly represented. You know, how can we support them going up into leadership so that they can have the wider impact? Because you know and I know that the biggest impact is made by the leaders at the top. Okay, mm-hmm. so how can we support that? Sorry, I know that's a, a quite a long answer, no, no. but it was a big question. No, 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 it's very, very, very concise in the end, Raza. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, have a good day. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And just to put some flesh on what Raza was saying regarding the profession of teaching. Now, to teach in a state school in England, you must have a degree, uh, gained a qualified teacher status, a QTS, by following a program of initial uh, teacher training. You must have achieved minimum requirements in GCSE English, Maths and Science if you wish to teach at a primary at primary level. Now, as a new teacher, your salary will be between £25,714 to £32,000 157 pounds now depending on where you teach the the school you teach in will have their own pay scales for qualified teachers pay increases will always be linked to performance not length of service a head teacher is the most senior person in the school as they are ultimately responsible for all the teachers and pupils uh, in the london area a head teacher makes a minimum salary of £48,901. Now, just for the sake of comparison, uh, we looked up the salaries given to London underground workers and it didn't take very long for us to find right on the TFL website that the annual salary of a train operator uh, last year was 58000 roughly £58,000. Now, that's 10000 more than a head teacher's salary. Um, so... You know, as a teacher, you know, you're going to get, the, there are bonuses, there are pros, yeah. You're going to get more days holiday than uh, people in many other professions. Uh, and in school, full-time teachers work 195 days per year. Now, uh, as for comparison, you'd work 227 days per year uh, on average if you work full-time in an office, say. And, you know, of course, the teacher's pension scheme is one of the, still the most generous in the country. Uh, teaching is one of the most respected and valued professions, uh, not just domestically, but globally. Now, a teacher is always considered uh, you know, an esteemed person, uh, in not just in Islam, but every religion. Now, no matter from which religion or society you belong to, you always show respect and honor to the people that you teach us. Uh, and to speak more regarding this, where uh, we have our next guest, which is uh, Wakas uh, Koka. Assalamu alaikum, Wakas. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Wa alaikum assalam. Uh, thank you for having me. So uh, we're talking about teachers, and you know, th- obviously the government's uh, pay increase or their pay. Sa- uh, yes, the pay increase 
of between five and eight percent. Now, you know, in terms of a vocation, just personally, workers, you know, do you actually, you know, do you find that you are still enjoying teaching? I mean, do you find it rewarding? Yeah, I mean, um, I've been teaching for coming up to nearly 20 years now. And um, uh, yeah, the simple answer there is yes, I do. I do enjoy it. I enjoy it every day and I do find it rewarding. Uh, every day is different. I've worked uh, previously to being a teacher. I've worked in um, uh, non-teaching jobs as well. Um, but I certainly I find it different and uh, there's no no day that's the same for me uh, that doesn't make it less challenging every day is uh, challenging and you know every other day is more challenging than the next I would say um, there is yeah, there's a lot of negative sides to it as in always working to deadlines and workload um, a lot of teachers will struggle with the workload and a lot of teachers will struggle with the work-life balance. Um, and uh, you were just mentioning that, that teachers work less days than uh, normal sort of people, if I can put them into that category. Yeah, say like an office worker, correct. for instance. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that I hear as a teacher all the time, oh, you know, uh, you start work at nine and you finish at three and uh, your life's easy. And I can tell you one thing, I do not start work at nine. I start work uh, several hours before that and, and I don't finish at three. I uh, Sometimes I'm still working past midnight. Most days, in fact, I'm still working past midnight. Um, so there is, it is important to strike the work-life balance there but I mean, it's 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 the nature of the job, and it is how it is. Mm. So, yeah, you know, we were talking to previously uh, one of our guests, a uh, head teacher, uh, had said that it was fine and fair that the government has awarded this this increase uh, between five and eight percent. But actually, how has that impacted upon, say, an individual's uh, or sorry, an individual school's budget? Because they have had to find that 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 uh, increase in wages and salaries, which is more than you know uh, deserved, but from other budgets. So, as you know, keeping that in mind, I mean, does that mean that you know the cost of teaching, right, as in the supplies that you use, yeah, you know, are you going to get less of those now? Yeah, now budgets have have. Uh, always been tight. I mean, I can only speak for the time that I've been teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say over the past few years in particular, I mean, they've been really, really stretched and it's really had an impact on both teachers and students. Um, there's certainly uh, there's certainly been an increase in the cost, in that cost of uh, living and uh, therefore there's been an increase in the cost of teaching uh, uh, per se um the supplies that we use yeah i mean uh, we are in many schools um printing cut, uh, budgets have been cut uh, substantially um not in the current school that i'm in but many other schools that i've worked at and also some of my colleagues they are just not allowed to print worksheets off for students Mm. They're not allowed to give them any, any uh, bits of paper. And for me, you know, that's 
uh, for any teacher, it's quite challenging to teach without having those resources. Mm. Um, individually, it has affected um, students themselves as well. Um, and uh, yeah, just in general, it's it's uh, budgets are being cut. Uh, not only I, I mean, I mentioned printing, but it's not just printing. It's it's other things like uh, stationery, and uh, teachers are now expected. Of course, I'm not speaking for every school, but but uh, you know, uh, in many schools, teachers are expected to have their own supplies and their own mm-hmm. whiteboard pens and their own board rubbers and etc. Um, etc. Et so yeah, that has had an impact. Mm. So, you know, I mean, do you feel that, uh, say, for instance, the school that you're in currently, uh, are, you know, do you feel that, you know, your current school has been well funded or funded enough to provide the best experience possible for your, your students? Or do you still feel that, you know, more needs to be done in terms of funding from the government? I think <coughs> schools do what they can. Yeah, mm-hmm. but but I think certainly there's a lot more that needs to be done from the government with regards to uh, with regards to the budget. I mean, your last your last guest uh, Reza mm-hmm. um, uh, was saying that um, you know he's having to as a head teacher, and I completely relate to it uh, that he's having to take budgets from elsewhere mm-hmm. to actually you know, uh, put them where the government has said they're needed. And, and I think it was very unfair for the government to do that, just to say, yeah, we're going to do this, but uh, yeah, you've got to sort that out yourself. Um, so the, that money's got to come from somewhere. Well, why, why doesn't it come from the government directly? Why, why have schools got to, uh, got to deal with that? So there's certainly a lot more to be done uh, by the government, I would say. Mm. Because, I mean... In your opinion, when comparing your salary to those of um, others with similar educational backgrounds, do you think you are being paid fairly? No. Very succinct. Didn't take long. to the point. Didn't take long. No. There's definitely a divide in salaries amongst people that teach compared to um, uh, private sector, even 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 private sector teachers, to be honest. Um but, I mean, for example, just as an example, ECT teachers, early career teachers um, that start off their career have been, um, have been given a pay increase uh, this year. I believe it was this year or last year. So they, they are certainly starting on a lot more um, uh, than I started on 20 years ago or even that, you know, uh, that, uh, that a new teacher would have started on a few years ago. So they are starting on um, on uh, quite a lot more there. And I think the government has set that to, um, I can only speak for science as a sort, uh, shortage uh, subject. And I think that's, that's near about the £30,000 annual salary mark. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you put that into the grand scheme of things, there's no progression there. Mm. If you still look, if you still look at the um the pace scales once a teacher reaches the top end of the main pay scale which is in 10 years time they're earning from that 30,000 pound they're earning maybe 6 or 7% more mm-hmm. 
and that's 10 years of work that's a very experienced teacher and even after the main pay scale when they're moving up to the upper pay scale for which they have to do an assessment and um, lots of other stuff to get to even then the maximum that they will reach from that first salary that they got and uh, we're talking about maybe 15 plus years down the line here but the maximum that that they will reach is a 10% salary increase wow so you're basically you, saying after 20 years possibly you're earning 31 32 and then another 10% on top of that uh, 35000 yeah, to, uh, uh, to put some uh, to put some numbers to it as a teacher at the top end of the upper pay scale without taking on a senior role within the school will currently be earning just over forty thousand pounds, wow. and that's someone. And that's someone. I mean, I know teachers like that that have been working for over twenty-five, thirty years mm-hmm. that are on that salary. Whereas I look at my peers, my friends, my relatives, uh, people that I've worked with in the past that are still in the private sector that went to school with me, that went to university with me, that got similar qualifications as me. And they're earning, you know, three, if not four, if not five times more than I am. Mm. And and I look at their workload and I think, hmm, something's not right here. Mm. But, I mean, sorry. No, I mean, it's, with all of these things that you've seen and you've experienced and you're saying, is, and obviously we can see it's not right, it's not fair, um, it shouldn't be the case as it is. If you were asked about things that you would change, and I mean, I'm sorry, I'm asking you to to try and say it in a minute. But um, what would you, what would you maybe let's see? What would you tell the current uh, government? Yeah, the minister education of education. Minister. Yeah, because I don't know who it is. Well, uh, number <laughs> changing one, every week. Uh, number, yeah, yeah, changes all the time. We don't know either. Um, <laughs> uh, well. Uh, coming to that point, actually, as as your last caller, Reza, also said, that the government needs to ensure that policies aren't changed every day. And mm-hmm. uh, at the minute, policies seem to be changed, and that has a big impact. Not, I mean, uh, not on us, but it has a bigger impact on our students. And, um, uh, you know, they really struggle sometimes. And when it comes to um, needing certain things or doing certain things in a certain way. Oh, I need to get those UCAS points. I need to get to this university. It really impacts them in that way. The other thing that's important that the government needs to look at is to somehow creating a work-life balance for teachers because, it, you know, our teachers don't uh, don't often talk about this, but uh, uh, when I say that literally almost every day we're seeing uh, midnight, um, doing our planning, doing our marking, thinking about it constantly, constantly. Um, uh, you know, uh, I'm not surprised that teachers need uh, need all the holidays that they get. And yeah, we do get more holidays than other people. Um, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, the obvious thing again here to say is fair pay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you've already discussed this in your show today, but uh, the latest sort of uh, pay rises uh, they're certainly not in line with inflation. Um, and, uh, you know, the government needs to look at that and, and sort of sort that out rather than uh, continuously introducing pay freezes that we've had, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And using austerity and using austerity as the excuse. I'm sorry to cut in here, Wakas. It's yeah, been a pleasure talking fine. to you. We're just coming up to the six o'clock news. But thank you for yeah, joining no. us on the Drive Time Show today.
No problem. It was a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Right. Okay. Well, that brings us right to the end of the show. Uh, a big shout out to the our uh, producers, uh, Nabahat uh, Naira, uh, Sana Nadim, and Farel Nasir, and also to our technician of the day, Zishan. Uh, that's it from us on Monday's Drive Time Show. Here's the six o'clock news.